Amen. Well, if you'll open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14, as we've mentioned a number of times as we've been journeying through this book, the easiest way to find Zechariah in the Old Testament is to go to the Gospel of Matthew and just turn backwards. We are in the closing uh, books of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14, found on page 1017 in your pew Bibles, looking at the rest of chapter 14 that we introduced last week, verses 12 through 21. Verses 12 through 21. And before we even read our text together, I want to kind of remind you where we were last week as we introduced this chapter to us. We were reminded what the prophecy beholds before us is a day that is coming where the church will face severe persecution. That the world will, or the world will place upon the church severe suffering. And that is displayed for us there in verses 1 and 2. But what happens in the midst of this severe affliction is in verse 5 where the coming of the Lord Jesus then comes on the day of the Lord and He gathers up all of His holy ones to usher them into a new heaven and a new earth. And as the Lord Jesus returns to call His people unto Himself to usher them into this eternal dwelling place with Him, we know that the Lord will defeat His enemies, that He will judge those who are against Him And even He will cause His people to dwell securely in the land, for there will be no sin in the midst of His great and holy city. Well, tonight in verses 12 through 21, that same plot is before us yet again. And that should not surprise you when we begin to think about end-time prophecies and what we would call eschatology. Because I agree with many of the best uh, Reformed commentators that Revelation actually tells us the same story seven times. This, This story of completion where what is happening before us in metaphorical term is explained to us more clearly in the book of Revelation. But it tells the same story of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the initiation, the consummation of His kingdom for all eternity, and His people inheriting the land. Well, that's before us again in verses 12 through 21. And yet, it tells us some different nuances, we might say. It gives us some new perspective, we might say, just as Revelation does, as it tells us the same story seven times over. And so even before we read, I want to kind of target your minds on on the three items that I want us to see or I want to draw out this evening as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table Because if you just look at your Bibles in verses 12 through 15, we have a very sobering and and chilling picture of the wrath of God upon the wicked. It's it's very graphic. It's, 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 It's causing you to be awakened from your slumber, to really understand the the depths of God's wrath that is before his enemies and our enemies. And then in verses 20 through 21, on the opposite side of the spectrum, there will be these glimpses, this short glimpse of heaven, the eternal rest for God's people, where holiness, as the commentator says, is the common theme of all of heaven. 
and then there in the middle in verses 16 through 20 or 16 through 19 rather we see the the distinguishing mark of those who will approach the eternal destiny of heaven or hell and so again verses 12 through 15 a picture of hell verses 20 and 21 a picture of heaven and then in verses 16 through 19 the the thought will be before us which eternity will you choose essentially and so i want to think about each one of those as we journey through this text together with that in mind let us read the text and then we will go verse by verse in it verse 12 and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that rage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other." Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them shall there be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to, the, to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the, judge, the punishment, the judgment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Well, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Well, before us, firstly, is verses 12 through 15, which I've already told you is a very sobering picture, a sobering description of what it is to be like in the eternal destiny of hell. If you look back at verses 1 and 2, you'll notice how we have already been reminded that there is a day that is coming when the nations will come against the people of God and they will gather against them and they will plunder their goods and they will abuse their women and half of the city shall go into exile and yet there will be a remnant that will remain. When those first two verses, we see a severe picture of persecution and, and, and suffering that will come to the church. And last week, if you were with us, we were talking about how the Lord in His kindness and the Lord in His mercy 
And the Lord in His sovereignty and His power, He will continue to grow the church in, in the likeness uh, in the likeness too of Him. And yet the world around us will grow darker and the suffering and the persecution from this dark and sin-filled world will feel as if it is crushing the church. And yet in the midst of that suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ, my God, Zechariah says in verse 5, will come and all the angels and the saints that have gone before us. Well, on that day that the Lord God comes... In verse 5, what will it be like for those who are persecuting the church? What will it be like for those who are against God and His gospel? And that's where verses 12 through 15 come into the picture. Because Zechariah comes back to that moment in verse 5 where the Lord God returns to save His people, to consummate His kingdom, and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And if we pay careful attention to what's being said here, we'll understand that verses 20 and 21, the heavens, the glories of heaven, are coming for the people of God. But Zechariah first, trying to shake you awake to see the destruction that is hell, paints this very sobering and chilling picture Maybe what we would say is some of the most chilling words in all of Scripture. Look back at verses 12 and 15, or through 15 with me. Zechariah calls this in verse 15 a plague. And he says this plague will be for those who have raged war against God's people. And he says that their flesh on the day of the Lord will rot... While they are still standing on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And and this is a picture that is terrible. I mean, we cannot read those verses without without thinking of the gravity that's before us when we think about the eternal destiny for all unbelievers in hell. It's gruesome imagery even where... Flesh is dissolving, and yet there is still life. You notice how the text reads. Their flesh is rotting, but they are still standing. Their eyes are rotting in their sockets, but they are not destroyed. And their tongues were rotten, their mouths giving them no voice, it's essentially implying, because there is no repentance in hell. You know, one of the things, one of the temptations when we think about this terrible picture of everlasting wrath and judgment upon God's enemies is, is Matt, well, this is a God of the Old Testament speaking. In it we see wrath and in it we see vengeance. But, but Matt, you tell us and you remind us all the time that we are New Testament Christians and We have Jesus who is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And we need to be careful not to create a false dichotomy here. The same God who speaks in Zechariah chapter 14 through the prophet Zechariah is the same God who speaks in the New Testament through the person of Jesus Christ. And in fact, what we would see if we would turn over to the New Testament is that hell is spoken in the New Testament more frequently and graphically by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, yes, came to show mercy and grace and to bring the good news of great joy for all people, but He did not hide the reality and the horrors of hell. You think about these texts with me for just a moment. You think about Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus speaks about hell as, quote-unquote, the outer darkness where there is weeping and the gnashing of teeth. We, we know the story, the parable in Luke chapter 13, verse 19, with the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is sent to hell for his sins, and Jesus says he is in such torment that he longs that Father Abraham would dip the tip of his finger into the water to cool his tongue, for the rich man says there is no relinquishing the torment of this flame. And so you think about what Jesus has said, even in these first or these two specific verses. It's a never-ending thirst. It's an eternal darkness. It's an inextinguishable fire. Those are the images that our Lord and Savior Jesus uses in the New Testament. And they are no less terrible, are they, than Zechariah's imagery here is hell's realities, hell's horrors are described. And, and of course, right, they're just pictures. I mean, you think about the way in which John the Revelator speaks in the last book of our Bible. He says, it's as if this, and it's like this. And he uses metaphors and similes to describe what he is seeing in heaven because the English words cannot grasp what he's seeing. In the same way, Zechariah sees before him is, is being revealed to him by the Father as the Holy Spirit is driving him to prophesy. He's, he's realizing the torments and the horrors and the darkness of hell, and yet he cannot find the English words to grasp at what is being described. What we understand here is in Zechariah 14, 12 through 15, and Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, and Luke chapter 13, verse 19, these are all metaphors and the metaphors are describing something far worse far worse than the hell that is to come for those who are sent there one of the things in which you must notice as we look at these first handful of verses verses 12 through 15 of Zechariah chapter 14 is that the people who this plague is being struck by the Lord is the one striking them. The Lord is the one who is sovereignly doing the work of His wrath upon His enemies. And it's a plague that they cannot escape. This is a plague that they cannot escape. The restraints of what we would understand as common grace in this era of the free offer of the Gospel. They're withdrawn. And those who find themselves in this eternal destiny of hell, they experience this horror. But, but to just give us more graphic details, it seems, Zechariah actually tells us three aspects of hell that we need, to, we need to look at here. The first is that hell has a, a relational aspect to it, or, or, or maybe the lack thereof. A relational aspect to it. If you look back at verse 13, it says, And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. 
And so if verse 12 is speaking of that first aspect of hell where it's personal, you are personally under the wrath of God in hell for all eternity, verse 13 shows you a different picture, a different aspect of hell where it says that you are utterly alone. You are alienated from fellowship. Yes, fellowship with God, but you are alienated even from one another. Hell has an aloneness to it that we cannot even imagine. It's an outer darkness. Yes, it might be populated by a vast number of people, but every one of hell's residents could not be more alone. And one of the things in which we have to understand in verse 13 is that this is actually a running theme of God's judgment against His enemies. This idea that one hand will will rise against another, actually shows itself throughout the Old Testament narratives. You think about how we see the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. It says that God made the men of Midian turn in their panic on one another and destroy themselves as God's people stand and shout praises to God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, it says that King Jehoshaphat The people under his rule sang praises to God while the men of Ammon and Moab destroyed the men of Seir. And then they turn on themselves and destroy each other. It's it's a picture of tearing apart the bonds that bind them together. And so we have to understand that one of the marks of judgment of God is tearing apart human relationships, human fellowship, human closeness and connection. I I was gripped by the way in which the commentator said it might be fully populated by a vast number of people, but every one of hell's residents could not be more alone. That's a gripping statement that we've already mentioned. And so it's personal. The wrath of God is personal. And yet, at the same time, that personal wrath causes you to be utterly alone. It has a relational aspect to it as as well as a personal aspect to it, but it also has a material aspect to it. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance, and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. And so here's the reversal Here's the irony in verses 1 and 2. That the nations, they're plundering the riches of the church. And then when Christ comes and He casts His enemies, He casts the church's enemies into hell. This eternal dwelling place of those who stand against Him. He then takes their riches from them and gives them to His people. It's what Jesus Himself is speaking of in the parable in Matthew chapter 25. Because we we know this parable. It's the the parable of the merchant that leaves various sums of money with his servants to invest. And and as the master returns, as this merchant returns, he asks those servants, what have you done with the money that I've given you to invest? And, And from one... He has been given tenfold, and from one he has been given fivefold, but there is one who has done nothing with the talents, nothing with the money that he was supposed to invest. And so this is what Jesus says 
about that one. He says, take that talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. This idea of taking that materialistic rich richness from him is what's being painted here for us in verses 14 and 15. And the picture here is from Zechariah's all the, all the riches that this world has to offer and all the trinkets that become idols to God's people that the world tries to deceive them with, to draw them away. Those who are drawn away from Jerusalem, those who do give in to the earthly riches, the earthly trappings, those things that they have substituted for Christ, they will find that satisfaction of earthly riches stripped from them. Stripped from them. And the people of God will be given in heaven the riches in abundance. And so it's a, it's a vast picture of, of hell that is before us. And then comes verses 16 through 19. And it's this distinguishing mark between those who will reap God's wrath and those who will receive the reward of God's heaven. He talks about here these families and these people who go up to the Lord and some of them worship and some of them do not. And what is being said here, very easily, even though verses 16 through 19 might be the hardest to, to exposit, I want to give you the simple look at the distinguishing mark between the two peoples. There will be a people who will bow a knee to King Jesus, and then there will be a people who will not. There will be worshipers, and there will be those who do not worship. For those who... Worship, they will receive what is about to be foretold for us in verses 20 and 21, the glories of heaven. But then for those who refuse to worship, who refuse to bow a knee to King Jesus, they will be those who are thrown into the eternal lake of fire that we just got done looking at very soberingly. And so those are the two groups of people. And the great distinguishing mark is, what are you going to do with this King Jesus? Will you bend a knee or will you not? Will you come before His throne and bow before Him in adoration and praise and delight? Or will you not? Those who will not will receive the wrath of God. Those who will will receive the glories of heaven. And that's how the book concludes in verses 20 and 21. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. What is being described here in verses 20 and 21 as it begins to speak about this pot in Jerusalem and Judah that will be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all that who sacrifice may come. What it's saying here is for all those who will come and worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, all who will bow a knee to King Jesus, there will be one theme, and that is 
holiness. I actually love how how this is described here because it it is speaking of this idea of the, the kingdom of God is a universal holiness to the Lord. So much so that even the bells of the horses, even the pots and the pans, it's as if Zechariah is saying, Every single home place, every single person, every single beast of the field, every single detail of the heavens is set aside in holiness. That is the common theme of heaven. One commentator said, we could even go down to every single piece of silverware and inscribed upon it will be holy to the Lord. Everything will be holy. Everything will be righteous. Everything will be pure. Everything will be radiant. And it reminds me all the way back in Zechariah chapter 3. Pastor Don preached that a number of weeks ago at this point. Zechariah chapter 3, of course, is the vision of Joshua the high priest. And you'll remember, I hope, that he's, he's clothed in these filthy garments and Satan comes and he's accusing him and And the Lord intervenes in mercy and grace and He begins to take away all the filthy garments and give Him proper clothes for the high priest. White linen, pure and radiant garments resembling, recognizing, showing us the righteousness of Christ. And and Zechariah is as if he cannot wait. Have you ever been on the edge of your seat while watching a television show or reading a book and you're screaming what what should happen? Or what's, what should happen next? And it's as if Zechariah interrupts his own vision because he's so anxious for what's supposed to be happening in the next scene. And he goes, don't forget the turban that sits upon the head of the high priest. Why is he so concerned with that? Because inscribed on the turban is, holy is the Lord, or holy to the Lord. And it's a declaration that From the top of his head to the soles of his feet, there is no more filthiness. There is no more sin. What we see is perfect purity, radiant with the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And and it's not going to be just the garments, you see. In in Zechariah chapter 3, it's just the clothes that we wear. But here, at the end of Zechariah, it is every single detail of heaven all the way down to the spoons and the fork of the marriage supper of the Lamb. They are inscribed with holy to the Lord. For every person who bows a knee to King Jesus, he reaps the reward of glory. He reaps the reward of eternal radiance. He reaps the reward of eternal fellowship with God. You see, what's happening here in verses 20 through 21 is the exact opposite of what's going on in verses 12 through 15. The personal damnation of hell for those who stand against God. On one hand, the personal inheritance of a kingdom. On the other, the stripping away of riches, of materials, on one hand, and the forks and the spoons being perfectly holy in another. It's an amazing picture that the plague for those who are enemies of God 
is turned into a feast for those who are friends of God. And that's exactly what we have before us as we come to the Lord's table. It's a feast. I know it's just a simple piece of bread and a simple cup of juice, but it is a feast spiritually. We know that our confession tells us And we understand this being derived from the Scriptures that by God's Spirit He is present and He is calling us up in mysterious ways to sit with Him and commune with Him so that we might have a foretaste of that heavenly and holy city that is to come. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself sets apart this piece of bread and this cup. And He says this simple cup and this little piece of bread is holy to the Lord. Because it's a remembrance of His body that was broken and His blood that was shed. And yet this table also, as it's given us just a sampling, if you will, of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will partake in with Jesus forever and ever in heaven, it it gives us a motivation to pursue holiness. Because when we think about the eternal destinies of those who are unbelievers... And we think about the eternal destinies of those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We see our shortcomings, don't we? We think about our failures. We think if we are to get there to the place where God is, we need a lot more work done to us. And this meal is that work. This meal is that motivation to walk in holiness. For He is reminding us of His death. He's reminding us that His body was broken, His blood was shed so that we might be washed as white as snow. And yet, He's also reminding us that there is a promise that the good work that He has started in you will be brought to its completion. And when you sit, you will be worthy because Christ has made you worthy. And so all those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're invited to this table. All those who bow a knee to King Jesus as the Lord of His life are invited to this table. All those who are pursuing righteousness, repenting of their sins and turning towards God in faith for their salvation are invited to this table. Because here it is that we have an appetizer of the perfections of heaven that are to come. For this table has been set aside to be holy to the Lord. Let us come and taste and see His goodness, His holiness, and His righteousness that He is inviting us to partake in, even this evening. I'll pray as the elders come. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to Your Word. And now we thank You for the opportunity to come to this, Your table. And let us, Lord, be thankful that You not only give us a word to hear, but You have given us a sacrament to touch, to see, to smell, to taste. You... you acknowledge that we are a people who are, who are very much tainted by our sin and we need a reminder of the gospel. And so you have given it to us. And you have given it to us in this simple cup, in this small piece of bread. And we pray, Lord, that we would endeavor as we partake of this meal to see you clearly and as we see you clearly that we might be reminded to walk in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So strengthen us, we pray, with this simple meal. In Christ's name, amen.